0: Um, there's, there's a sort of naive utopianism about how you know, sort of everyone can go to Oxford, uh, sort of thinking, uh, which is um, which is not humane. It's it's kind of narcissistic It's the narcissism of the anywhere
1: class. Hello, welcome to the Idea Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Today, I'm incredibly excited to be speaking to one of my dream guests, David Goodhart. David is a British journalist, commentator, and author. He's the founder and former editor of Prospect magazine. He's probably most famous for his 2017 book, The Road to Somewhere, in which he argued that a fault line existed in Britain between somewheres, those people firmly connected to a specific community, which consists of about half the population. And the Anywheres, those usually living in cities, people who are socially liberal, well-educated, these people make up about 20-25% to of the total population. But in David's opinion, they had actually overruled the attitudes of the majority. And this divide is something which is by no means unique to Britain. It's highly relevant to America, with both Brexit and Trump being a revolt led by the somewheres. In this conversation, David and I talk about his most recent book, Head, Hand, Heart, in which he argues that a good society needs a balance between aptitudes, aptitudes like cognitive skills, manual skills, and caring skills, or head, hand, and heart. David argues that the recent decades in the West have seen far too much emphasis on rewarding cognitive ability as the gold standard of human esteem. For David, readjusting this balance is the story of the struggle for status and dignity in the 21st century. So with that contextual primer out of the way, I give you the wonderful David Goodhart. So David, I just wanted to start by saying what a privilege it is to be speaking with you. I've read The Road to Somewhere and Head Hand Heart twice now, and I think it was the first book which really, um, how to say, catapulted me out of my socially liberal echo chamber and made me appreciate how silently suffocating a university campus and a um, middle-class milieu can be, and that's despite the fact that I grew up very working class and was the first in my family to go to university. So, first of all, thank you very much for for writing um, that book and all your work since. Um, The quote that I've used for the thumbnail on this video is from Hand, Heart, which is, Smart people have become too powerful. Could you unpack what that means for viewers and explain perhaps the common threads between your two books?
0: Yeah. um, Well, thank you for inviting me on. And I'm I'm glad my books have spoken to you. Um, Yeah. um, Now, obviously, it's sort of slightly glib uh, slogan, smart people have become too powerful. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it does does sum up um, actually both books in some ways in the two books. As you to are, are very much related. It's uh, like kind of volume one and volume two. Um, I mean, you know, clearly smart people are um, are useful to humanity in all sorts of ways. Um, being smart is um, is a, um, a wonderful thing in many ways. Um, um, you know look look at the pandemic. I mean you know we we would be struggling even more than we are without the work of you know highly intelligent people working in medical scientific teams coming up with the vaccines, um, working across borders usually to, to produce these breakthroughs. Um, and um, that that should be celebrated as well as the the you know the key worker point that people are always making about how you know most of the people we found ourselves most directly reliant on were people you know without university degrees often in minimum wage jobs stacking shelves in supermarkets and so on I think you know both of these things can be true um but I think the the problem um I mean you know the the, the road to somewhere in my distinction between people who see the world from anywhere and the people who see the world from somewhere I mean the problem is not that the anywhere worldview um, is to be despised or um, regretted in any way. Um, Similarly, with the somewhere worldview, both of these worldviews are perfectly decent and uh, at least in their mainstream forms, perfectly legitimate and decent. Um, The problem is that they are at certain in certain key respects in conflict with each other. And that one has been has become, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, one has become far too powerful, um, has dominated our political, economic, and cultural institutions, and has become um, sort of the only game in town. Um, and I guess I I dug deeper into that problem in head, hand, heart, and looked at the rise, as it were, of the of the kind of cognitive class, which overlaps substantially with the anywhere class and there are, there is a certain set of values and priorities and assumptions associated with with anywheres and with people who are highly educated and highly intelligent I mean the two things are not always the same um you know we know, we know that that you know socio-economic advantage can obviously um turn people of, kind of modest intellectual ability into sort of successful professional people um and um and there are many highly able people who for whatever reason don't want to or don't get the chance to develop their um their intellectual skills in a sort of formal university environment um so um but i mean the the um the 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 problem is uh, that the, what the as I say, the values and priorities of the highly educated tend to um, focus on certain things, on mobility, I mean, particularly in this country with uh, overwhelmingly residential universities, I and mean, we're an international outlier in that respect, but um, most elite university sectors uh, tend to be residential, the kind of mass higher education in most countries, Tends not to be residential. We're unusual in that even the, the kind of mass higher education tends to be residential here. That we're what we've done essentially sort of to massify the sort of classical elite higher education associated with an Oxford or a Cambridge. Um, so mobility, um, um, openness generally. I mean, these tend to be, you know, as psychologists will tend will tell you, actually um, uh, highly intelligent people tend to Have have this bias towards openness and fluidity. They're more comfortable with social change, um, partly because they benefit from social change too. I mean, if you're dealing, if you're manipulating information, you're dealing in ideas. You know, these are these are things where um, you know sort of geographical boundaries tend to be seen as an obstacle. These are all perfectly decent things. Openness, mobility, or individual autonomy, particularly, um, is something that i mean the w- w- one of the one of the other sort of binaries that um that i talked about in in the road to somewhere was not not original to me um but drawn from this american sociologist Tulker parsons and his way of thinking about human identity on this spectrum between ascribed at one end and and achieved at the other i think that's a, it's a really helpful way of looking at things and uh, most highly educated people tend to have an achieved identity. You know, they've done well at school, they've gone to more or less good universities, they've had successful professional careers, and and they tend to think of themselves, not not entirely wrongly, as sort of the product of their own achievements. Um when obviously their sort of social structure and their family background and so on will have will have helped them perhaps in various ways. Um and, and actually perhaps this is particularly true, maybe of people like yourself, people who've come from you know from socioeconomic backgrounds that are, that are not normally associated with higher education people um, um, who often then feel rather rather kind of distanced from the culture of their family origins and and have a very strong sense of being the sort of product of their own achievements um, and i think that creates a kind of a slightly misleading sense of the, of the autonomy of the kind of human of human biography, um, and um, um, which is which contributes to a very individualistic worldview. Um, you know, this is sometimes being described as the you know, as the weird worldview, um, as you know, sort of Western educated, industrial. Uh, I, I would actually use the other eye to say individualistic. <laughs> um, 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 the the world view of educated people in rich countries essentially um which has become the sort of norm of thinking about the world whereas in fact as the kind of weird acronym suggests you know we are very unusual um in our priorities and i think um yeah i think the i think it's been quite damaging for our politics to have had these priorities so dominant um perhaps combined with a certain degree of sort of self-righteousness about them too, that, 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 that there's a kind of, uh, I and mean, they don't all, I mean, there are lots of people who might be described as on the right or centre-right of politics who would also um, subscribe to, to that sort of anywhere world view of mobility, openness, autonomy. Um, um, but it's non- nonetheless, it tends to have a sort of somewhat progressive bias. Um, and. Um, it is very distant from the world view and the priorities of large minorities, if not majorities, of of our fellow citizens. Um, people most 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 people tend to prefer the familiar to the unfamiliar. Uh, most people prefer you know, security and familiarity to rapid change. Um, um, and indeed, I think it's uh, one of the sort of Failings of modern liberalism, I think, has been the um, over eager embrace of change um, and, and fluidity in, in human relations more generally. Um, now, I mean, you know, there, there, there is obviously there are positive aspects of that, obviously, but um, I think uh, I think there's been a lack of imagination on the part of um, the people who've tended to dominate our societies in the last generation or two in um, in not Taking account of the interests of people who see rapid change as loss, um, and um, people who are much happier to um, remain relatively rooted, people whose identities are drawn very much more from the kind of ascribed end of the spectrum, meaning things about themselves that they can't really change, um, the groups they belong to, the places they come from. And like I've said, I think, I think, I think populism partly has its roots in the the failure of sort of the the mass elite of um, of western countries in recent years to recognize um, that uh, that 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 as it were legitimate reluctance to to sort of embrace um full-scale liberal liberal modernity um, with all that sort of dislocation and fluidity um, Because if your identity is is primarily based on group and and place and if that place and group change because of rapid social change. um, After all, you know, we had a whole kind of a whole working class culture in Britain disappeared in about 25, 30 years from the kind of late 60s, early 70s um, to the end of the last century. and that left a lot of people with a, with, a, with a deep sense of, of loss and dislocation. I think, um, because their identities were drawn primarily from place and group, that 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 change affected their their sense of themselves in a way that the you know, those with with more um, kind of self made achieved identities um, were were able to surf those waves of change more, much more comfortably because they um yeah they, they they drew their sense of themselves from their own individual biography and that sort of in, and, and that sort of individualism allowed them to um it, it made their identity more sort of portable <coughs> so you could you know you can live in the edgy inner city quite comfortably um uh, because you're because you have a different sense of yourself um so yeah i think i think that's 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 what i mean when i say smart people have become too powerful that the priorities of smart people um have been too dominant i mean there's nothing wrong with smart people um uh you know and and smart people are essential to to human progress in many ways um,
1: um but um they've been too politically dominant this is a uh, a channel which has the tagline uh, interdisciplinary education is the future, which is something I strongly believe in as uh, someone that's mainly self-taught, even at university. I want to kind of uh, highlight what I think are the most important problems that you and people like Paul Collier in the future of capitalism uh, talk about, and people like Matt Goodwin um, and others, um, in terms of education and the economy, and just try and get your, your, your... response and your latest thoughts. So in The Road to Somewhere you mentioned that 17% of Brits leave school functionally illiterate, 22% leave functionally enumerate. Uh, relatedly Paul Collier writes in The Future of Capitalism that by age six differences in educational attainment uh, which will appear in a decade are able to be predicted, meaning the first few years are more important than the 12 years at school. Then we have a different series of uh, epidemics, uh, which I would be fascinated to get your um, thoughts on because it's not something that you really write about in um, The Road to Somewhere or Headhunt Heart. 22% of millennials say they have no friends. 27% said that they had no close friends. About one in three men aged 18 to 24 reported no sexual activity in 2019, 46% of young people aged 12 to 16 feel that they're addicted to their smartphones. For youth, major depression, major depression increased 52% from 2005 to 2017. And from 8.7%, that was from 8.7% to 13.2%. And it rose 63% in young adults aged 18 to 25 from 2009 to 2017. How much do those trends worry you? what do you think we can do about them? And I guess the overarching question here is what would your ideal education system look like? Because presumably it would be a system which tackled a lot of these terrifying trends.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, the the figure you quoted at the beginning that comes from something called the Sheffield Report. I think Which came out in 2012 or 2013. I mean, I I don't know what the current figure is, um, but I think we have shied away from kind of acknowledging um, there's there's a sort of naive utopianism about how you know sort of everyone can go to Oxford uh, sort of thinking, uh, which is um, which is not humane. It's it's kind of narcissistic, It's the narcissism of the anywhere class. Saying that you know, oh, well, but you know, surely everybody can be like us. Well, no, not everybody can be like you. Um, there is a huge range of human ability um, and a huge range of intellectual uh, ability. Um, and I guess you know, the the kind of 11, 12 years or whatever it is, compulsory schooling, ought to be partly about finding out what people are good at, um, and. Building on, I mean, the, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very much in favour of many of the um, the Gove reforms of the early 2010s. Um, I mean, I think that the kind of rigor that he, that him and Cummings represented, um, and the, um, um, yeah, I mean, the the kind of hostility to the. Grade inflation, and so I mean, we had invested, you know, new labor invested a huge amount in secondary education without an enormous amount to show for it in in genuinely improved standards. Um, uh, I think there was some progress in in primary education, uh, much more limited, I think, in secondary. Um, But uh, and I, I think a lot of the reforms the academy reforms free schools and so on have have a lot to be said for them, i think uh, and i think you know the, the basic belief that that nearly everybody not absolutely everybody but nearly everybody can get up to 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 really good basic level uh, basic academic level kind of in english and maths and so on if they are well taught in you know in a, in a rigorous and disciplined school environment um then I mean, you know, and we do have some of these uh, examples, particularly in London schools like Mossbourne and Michaela, where it has been shown that you know that pretty well everybody, I mean, that, that can can get up to a certain level, and, and kids often from very disadvantaged backgrounds can, when very well taught, you know, walk into into elite universities. Um, I think the weak part of the one of the weaknesses um, was a lack of hand and heart in a way in in that. It kind of reinforced um i mean it, it, you know there was a kind of egalitarian democratic impulse i think behind it but it was it kind of represented too much a sort of academic anywhere worldview um and you know schools to this day are, are judged far too much i think on the on the number of kids they send to elite universities uh and there are other forms of intelligence there are other forms of capability and i think um a lot of um I mean, you know, uh, you know, practical um, skills, you know, the things that used to be taught in so-called domestic science, the things that used to be taught in sort of carpentry and metalwork, have, have been disappearing. I think they've now almost completely disappeared from the school curriculum. Uh, I think that is, um, I think that is not a good thing. Um, I think I suggest in head, hand, heart, everybody should uh, leave school having mastered at least, or, or, or having made some steps towards mastering, you know, one practical skill, you know, from coding to carpentry. Um, and I think, you know, the teaching of the, the arts, um, you know, the, the, you know, art, you know, drawing, painting, dancing, acting, um, and the, you know, music, these are you know, vital human skills too. Um, you know, I think in, in Victorian times, you know, the educated person was someone who could speak at least one foreign language and play a musical instrument. I mean, with that, we seem to have kind of lost that sense of the sort of rounded, sort of capable person. Um, and um, and I think, you know, there, there are lots of people, um, particularly people obviously brought up in homes where, um, where they, you know, perhaps in single parent ha- ha- homes, Without books on the shelves, without a parent, you know, you using a kind of extended uh, vocabulary to them from an early age. Who are going to, uh, you know, who are going to be sort of fighting this academic battle with one hand tied behind their back? Um, and um, um, and I think um, you know this is often caricatured as well. You know, um, you know, people just want to you know allow you know better off people to dominate the the kind of academic positions and send all the working class kids into um into uh, you know sort of carpentry metalwork classes or whatever i mean that you know that, that that's the, the sort of scar that has been left by the 1944 education act and the sort of grammar school secondary modern divide um i mean i think you know you one should almost look at it the other way around i mean actually you know we want you know privileged kids who, you know, many of whom are not at all academic, but you know, with the help of extra tutoring and so on, can can, you know, you know, most, unless they're really very dim, you know, can be helped into Russell Group universities and into professional jobs, will will stop it, you know, <laughs> allow them to do something else. They, you know, if they're not um, intellectually able, they quite possibly have other capabilities, other capabilities that can also be. Um, monetized, um, or you know, entrepreneurial abilities, or whatever. Um, you know, I mean, o- often um, you know the fish rots from the head, but you know the fish is also inspired by what's going on in the head, as it were. <laughs> um, and um, you know, I think um, it'd be great to see, you know, as it were, fewer privileged kids going to university and more of them, you know, becoming artisanal cheesemakers in Hackney or whatever it is. Um, and I think we are going to see that. Um, um, I mean, I think we are we're beginning to see that more generally that people are, have become disillusioned with the single ladder to uh, the idea of a successful life, running up through uh, necessarily running up through higher education. It's a much more, it's a much narrower and, and sort of less imaginative um, route than used to be the case. You know, fifty or hundred years ago, there were lo- lots of little ladders up. Mm. Um, and um we we need to i uh, you know we just need to cultivate um a wider range of capability i mean you know it's, i mean this is you know, i mean i do feel sorry for schools you know so much is loaded upon them and actually as you were saying earlier i mean so much is actually determined in 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 the family even before you go to school um I mean, in terms of the the kind of rise in depression and anxiety, and I mean, I, I'm a little bit sceptical about some of the stats here. I mean, you know, when it comes to depression, um, the there is some relatively hard medical evidence that um, uh, the uh, there isn't the crisis that it, that um, I mean, you know, many of these surveys are, are kind of have a huge selection bias in them. Um, but, um, I mean, the, uh, um, what is it, Simon Wesley, the, he's like the sort of chief psychiatrist, um, says that much of this is not true, the mental health of young people. With, with, one, with one group, um, he does say there is quite hard, hard evidence for their um, um, sort of declining mental health, and that is, I think, young women aged I mean, sort of 14 to to 20 or something like that and the the snapchat generation yeah and and i think so you know social media probably can and should take quite a lot of the blame for that i mean the 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 way that it kind of makes it so much easier to to compare ourselves with others and to feel left out and um um but i think yeah we should be careful about not exaggerating um
1: the the problem there. Um, Because I'm wary of time, I want to try and move us on rather artificially to issues of the economy. Um, Did you read the now, unfortunately, late David Graeber's bullshit jobs?
0: Um, I did. Um, I actually reviewed it in the Sunday Times quite critically. I mean, not, not because the underlying idea... Well, I, I didn't think the underlying idea was particularly original, um, I have to say. And it was a classic example of a of something that should have remained as a magazine article, which is how it started life. And he just sort of padded it out and produced. I mean, I know it's been very um successful. I think that's probably partly mainly mainly because of the title. <laughs> um, I wonder how many people have actually read it. Um Um, and I was also kind of select, I think, I mean, I know this is slightly sacrilegious, lots of people swear by him, but I thought he had a sort of slightly puerile, um, kind of anarcho-leftist worldview, um, and, um, uh, but, but I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, but it's an important theme, I mean, having meaning, um, having a sense that you're contributing in what you do, um, I think is, is important, and I think, um, one of the reasons for the rise in in the number of people who feel they are in bullshit jobs is because of the sort of academicization of our whole society um that um and, and that you know aspects of that are obviously beneficial i mean the fact that you know far fewer of us are having to slave away in the fields um you know, planting potatoes or you know, far fewer are, are doing repetitive manual jobs in factories um, is a great step forward um, but I mean that the you know the human division of labor is, is both a wonderful thing from the point of view of productivity but a, but a pretty deadly thing from the point of view of the quality of many jobs um, and that's that there's a sort of necessary tension there um and I think that there are always going to be quite a few jobs um, that will be sort of you know inherently dull or um, repetitive or um but they're probably going to decline in number uh, I think they they've been on they they were I mean I think Graber's books are probably caught a sort of peak bullshit as it were um uh, and I do think this is also related to the kind of the, the, something I talk about in in head hand heart, which is sort of uh, we've we, we've reached peak head that, uh, that um, in the sense that more and more people have been coming out of university with uh, with academic qualifications, um, expecting that to lead to a high status, well paid professional job, and in many many cases, increasing number of cases now um, it, it isn't leading. In that direction at all it's leading to and it's that's creating a great disappointment which i think Graeber's book sort of taps into uh that that the disappointment of you know and many, many people like you first in your family to go to university mind you given how rapidly university education has been expanding that applies to almost everybody <laughs> going to university <laughs> um, um uh, and i think um you know, you end up on a you know, sort of 22 grand a year kind of back office job when you're expecting to be, I don't know, an academic or a, you know, a, a country doctor or, you know, sort of something, you know, um, wearing a sort of tweed suit and people deferring to your authority on something. Um, that ain't happening. Um, but um, a lot of those bullshit jobs are going to be swept away by AI. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're going to be in a sort of post-graver world um but i I think the contribution element is is also one of the kind of things that's been driving populism that 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 sense that it's somehow only academic things only jobs that are involved in the manipulation of information that somehow have value and that so much else that is done um is, is 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 less valued and i think a lot of people you know have felt you know all those sort of people in london and the big metropolitan centers who seem to earn the High incomes, and, and they seem to kind of all all the importance seems to attach to them. Um, and I, I guess one feels that particularly in sort of um, post-industrial areas of the country, where um, you know the the contribution of the you know the South Yorkshire coalfield to um, to the powering of Britain was just self-evident. You know, if you came from that area, you 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 knew you know you you your your relatives, your your area was making this great contribution to the country. And somehow over the recent decades, because of the emphasis on, on, on the kind of academic and the kind of abstract and the manipulation of information, you know, it's all those sort of grander office jobs and the financial manipulation and uh that that have been um receiving the reward and the esteem. Um and I think that uh, and that has that's led to a sense from on the part of many people, like I say, particularly in post-industrial areas that they're they're no longer contributing. Um, And that's why I think, you know, it's important to sort of shift the emphasis back to basic jobs, manual jobs, caring jobs in particular. And these actually are going to be the growth areas. Um, The the, the jobs that cannot be um, replaced by um, artificial intelligence or robots or um, and, so, and some of these are very, you know, driving jobs, uh, you know, being an HGV driver, you know, we have a crisis of, you know, a, a crisis of HG, HGV drivers at the moment, um, um, because, you know, people have been led to believe these are somehow not contributing, <laughs> or not yeah. contributing in the way that, that that gathers esteem, um, but, so, you know, th- th- those jobs are going to be absolutely vital still, I mean, the, the you know, the the final delivery you know the, the Amazon delivery person um, and of course the care jobs that uh, that we still um, uh, you know, we have huge problems filling the care jobs whether it's you know, nursing jobs in the NHS or working in care homes and we are going to have you know, we don't really have any choice we're going to have to pay them better and uh, and and give them more esteem having said that I mean I think a lot a lot of you know, nurse nurses tend to have quite high esteem And actually, they're not badly paid either. Yeah, Um, it's quite quite a flat um, pay hierarchy, but um, so it's quite difficult for hospitals to attract nurses back once they've qualified, but have gone off and had families. And uh, given the amount of responsibility and stress involved in a nursing job, um, the the kind of pay for a sort of 45-year-old returnee nurse is simply not good enough. uh, So they're not returning uh, in the numbers that are necessary.
1: I just want to push you um, slightly on the, your, your anarchism comment because I, I feel like a lot of the um, issues that you point to in both books, um, now whilst it's not a panacea, it seems like a lot of those problems could be somewhat alleviated via an injection of uh, workplace democracy. You know, the the alienation and the meaning um, I think that's what people like Graeber and you know, people like Noam Chomsky point to I I realize that they're mainly diagnostic books but is that something that you would be in favour of
0: Well I think we already have it I mean I, I mean I I think this is kind of there, there's a sort of straw man here um, Right you now we we don't have it everywhere but mm-hmm. um, you know, there will always be an irreducible number of of basic jobs that, are, that don't have inherent satisfaction. I mean, it's true, you know, there are lots of the kind of jobs that you and I do, um, you know, being a medical consultant or an actor or a writer or a, many professional jobs do have a kind of intrinsic satisfaction to them. And there are many other kinds of jobs that never will, you know, being an Amazon delivery person is never going to be intrinsically satisfactory. But, but um, you know, if your working conditions, are decent if you have the, the uh, you know, you, if you ha- you're working in a friendly working environment, you're treated with respect, you have promotion um, possibilities. I mean, even the most basic, you know, I mean, the supermarkets are, you know, massive employers of people. They probably, we probably employ more people in supermarkets than we do in, uh, you know, in all the manufacturing industries put together. Um, and a lot of those jobs are quite basic, working on a till, you know, stacking shelves. But there are, there are, you know, there's a hierarchy like in almost any sector, um, and you can climb it, and you can become a kind of um, head of a section. You can then become a sort of, you know junior manager, and you can, and you can end up, you know, managing a supermarket that that employs 800 people, um, or, you know, and might well be one of the biggest employers in in your town. Um, so, um, you know, if, like I say, if, I mean, n- not everybody wants promotion though, you know, m- many people want to, you know, work part-time, uh, you know, earn a decent, de- decent uh, uh, amount of money. And, and uh, you know, as long as you know the working environment is friendly and, and you, you, you get on with your fellow workers, you know, the, the, you know a, lot, a lot of people actually like going to work for those reasons. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm against, um, UBI is that I think I think people draw um, a lot of meaning from work. It gives their lives structure and, and meaning as well as income. obviously. <clears throat> I think UBI is a sort of um, it's a sort of tech oligarch fantasy. I mean, it's it, well, it, rather it's 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 another example of where highly educated anywhere type people think that everybody in the world is like them. You know, <clears throat> um, highly highly driven and outwardly directed and uh, and and actually most people aren't um, h- highly driven <clears throat> they don't uh, and and and, th- and many people kind of need structure around them to function well um, and if you're just handing people a check so they can sit at home and play video games i mean i think you know i think then sort of depression and and death via alcoholism would absolutely go through the roof um, so I'm not in favor of that, but I do think, I think, you know, almost almost all jobs can can be decent. Um, People Mm -hmm. can want to go to them when they wake up in the morning. Like I say, obviously, they have to, you know, just the basics have to be right and in many cases they are right. and if they're not, then people need to, you know, complain, and 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 there are mechanisms, usually mechanisms of redress. I mean, one of the biggest ones being that we have a relative, relatively free labour market. You know, you can go and find a similar job down the road. Um, particularly at the moment, I mean, we're in a position of a very very tight labour market, which is which is great. Wages are rising, um, and I think this is this is a longer term trend too. We've been through the period where, particularly, um, particularly. As it were uh, people in lower socioeconomic groups in rich countries have been the ones squeezed by the, the kind of the one-off expansion to the global labor market um, in the kind of in the last 30, 30 or forty years with the arrival of China and India onto the um, uh, onto the global labor market uh, that you know that drove down the cost of labor in rich countries for people doing um, for working in kind of Uh, industry factory type jobs but um, that's kind of happened and it's sort of worked its way through the system and actually the global labour market is going to to be tighter and tighter I think in coming decades. so the kind of power balance is going to shift back now I mean I suspect that won't involve the return of trade unions um, on a big scale they were a function of large working units. Um, and probably the largest working unit in, in, in most uh, most of our towns and cities is going to either be an NHS hospital or, or, the, or a supermarket in terms of sort of, of actual physical production um, there isn't going to be a return to the kind of 19th century factory system <clears throat> even if we do kind of reindustrialize to some extent so I don't expect to see a, a big rise in unions but I, but I think, um, the the individual worker will have uh, uh, more power, or he does have more power in 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 many circumstances at the moment, and will express that power through um, through leaving unless they get a pay rise, or unless their supervisor stops um, you know being so demanding or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I'm kind of rel- relatively optimistic about. About work in a way, like I say, you know, AI is going to take away a lot of the um, the sort of middle class drudgery jobs that I think Graver was was mainly talking about. <clears throat>
1: um, so yeah, I want to get on to audience questions, but my final question um, is: What's the best critique that you've received of both books? I know da- David Willits wrote, a I think, a somewhat unfair review, but in your opinion?
0: Um, one thing that, I mean, head, hand, heart, I, it, one thing that slightly irritated me, but um, made me think I should have emphasized it even more was that, you know, obviously it's an artificial distinction, head, hand, heart. Um, <clears throat> I was rather irritated by Madeleine Bunting's stress on this, but, uh, uh, that, um, um, uh, I mean, obviously everything we do is a combination of, um, the kind of cognitive and the, emotional and embodied um, <clears throat> um, and obviously all jobs require a combination of those things too but I, I, it, it's also the case that you can have you know that there are some jobs that emphasize the cognitive more than the, uh, than, 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 the than the kind of physical or the or, or the uh, emotional um so and like i said i did um i said i did Point out, I did admit that it was a kind of artificial distinction <clears throat> um, in you know, three or four times in the book. I should probably have done it eight or ten times. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, I, no, I've been slightly, slightly disappointed in. Way. Yeah, I mean, there's the sort of Willits critique, which you know, and a lot of people in higher education were very defensive about both books in a way. Um, you know it's and they're sort of kicking away the lad a lot of ad hominem sort of kicking away the lad it's all right for you you went to a russell university your kids have done uh, you know you want to stop all these working class kids going to university and make them do metal working out for fuck's sake uh, <clears throat> uh, that is not what i want um you know i think you know people who are highly uh, intellectually able from any class should you know we need you know we have great universities great research universities uh, they're an important part of our economy our culture and, and um that you don't get a more productive research base in your country, in your economy, um, by just sending willy-nilly more and more people to university. This is a complete myth. I mean, the the number of people that are capable of producing new knowledge, whether in science or technology or indeed the humanities, is tiny, and always will be tiny.
1: Um, Probably correlates with the second standard deviation, right, of the IQ bell curve, right? So that's what, 15% of people, probably, probably fewer. You own a far fewer than fifty percent of the population yeah. produced knowledge, useful. Oh yeah! In terms of novelty, um, it's probably two percent. Yeah.
0: yeah, 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 or even less. Um, <clears throat> and it doesn't rise the more people you send to university. Uh, you, you just create a, a sort of bigger, sort of bureau, sort of cognitive bureaucracy. Um, again, it's I guess this is sort of partly what Graver was complaining about. Um, <clears> to <throat> so do, I do agree with him about that. Um, um, but. Um, you know, and 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 it's it's also premised on the lack of uh, value that we attribute to other human capabilities. You know, to other uh, to other human abilities. You know, relating to, to technical and practical intelligence, um, um, you know, and, and care and emotional intelligence, and um, <clears throat> and all those all these other things that have been have been undervalued. Um, and it's, it's kind of you know, it's this sort of academic monoculture. Now, you know. I can. You know, David Willits was higher education minister. He's written a huge book on higher education. I mean, it's. You know, he has a vested interest. I mean, even more so do the kind of academics who defend the the current status quo. But I think it's it's pretty indefensible, really, if you look at it objectively. I mean, it's, it's done nothing for social mobility. Quite the opposite. <clears throat> you know, many of the um, accounts of um, uh, the. Um, the, the decline or the sort of plateauing off of social mobility attributed precisely to the uh, expansion of higher education, which has been so monopolised by the middle and upper middle classes. Um, and, you know, the fact that a, a proportion of working class kids go to university too is not a, a reason for um, for continuing to expand higher education, when you know we have you know the, this horrendous missing middle of technical skills and so on, and these jobs are now being extremely well paid because there are so few people, out uh, you know out there doing them. Um, so we have the missing middle problem to worry about, and of course, as I already said, the kind of uh, the, the the care crisis of recruitment in the in the various public care industries. Um, and uh, no, I mean. You can understand why so many people are going to universities still. I mean, the thing is on automatic pilot. The universities have a massive, you know, they're businesses as well as cultural institutions, and they and they, you know, and they get however many thousands of pounds it is for every kid they that they that they, they recruit. Um <clears throat> so that you know they are not uh they are not objective, obviously, in this argument. I mean, one of the other problems is that employers have used a a, a, <clears throat> a university degree as a sort of screening process um, and something like 35-40% of all the jobs in the British economy are now graduate only in effect uh, which I think is uh, you know I mean I think graduate only jobs should be banned I mean obviously there are lots of jobs that require high levels of cognitive skill um, and many of those jobs will be a combination of hand uh, uh, or or head and heart often Um, I mean uh, the kind of job of the future i often refer to is that the dimensioners sort a of classic combination of requiring the um you know a, a lot of book learned knowledge to to understand you know what we do know about this terrible um illness but it also requires you know to be a really good dimension nurse. you you have you know requires the patience of job um you need to be like a sort of a brilliant parent with a with a difficult child um, and um, yeah and I think I think a, a lot of those sorts of combinations will become more important um, uh,
1: in in the labor market as as we go forward. So I want to try and get at least two audience questions in before three quickfire questions so if you can be concise, I know that they will be very grateful. Um, the first one comes from Rory. And his question, he's got four, but I'm just picking the best one. Can anybody turn the Labour Party around? If not, what do you think could replace it? And what are your thoughts on the blue Labour movement going forward? I personally think Paul Embry should become Labour leader, but there we go. Um, I,
0: don't, I mean, uh, uh, I think, yeah, how how can, can the Labour Party... Break out of its sort of um, liberal graduate ghetto, um, both in terms of personnel and in terms of its sort of policy bias. I think it's. I think it's very difficult, and I think it. um, I think it probably will break up or or um, continue its decline. Um, I mean, there is. What's the the uh, the guy who's mayor of Bristol, I think, is, is perhaps one to watch. Um, yeah, I forget his name, Mar- but I know the one. Yeah, Marvin Reese Mar- Marvin Reese, that's right, yeah. Um, <clears throat> um about eight or nine years ago, I went to a um fundraising dinner for him and I bid for and won a um boxing training session in Bristol. <laughs> it's absolutely shattering. <laughs> Um, uh, I th- and I, th- I think he's sort of come, come out of the kind of
1: Bristol Colston business quite well, from what, what I've heard of him. Um, All right, I'm going on to Betfair after this. I'm I'm putting a thousand pounds on. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, but I think I mean you know, I mean I think the only policy that the Labour Party party can have at the moment is is essentially to hold the Tory party to account over Leveling Up. I mean, to say, you know, and say at the next election, you promised to level up Britain and you haven't. Uh, now, I, I mean, obviously they're not going to have leveled up very much in the next three or four years, having I mean, given how <clears throat> deep and structural many of the problems related to our grotesque regional inequality are. Um, um, but and it is quite likely that they will not be able to show very much progress. Um, but um, that yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd be very surprised if um, um, if they return to being, <clears throat> you know, a kind of electable government um, soon. And I think they probably need to. <clears throat> I mean, it, it probably it depends on whether we adopt PR. I mean, I assume the Labour Party is in favour of it because it's the only way. It's only really all way back to power, you know. Um, perhaps you know, with with the SNP, if if Scotland doesn't become independent. Um, and then, and then I don't, you know, but, you know, there are still lots of kind of Blairites that, you know, Andrew Adonis is still in the Labour Party. Um, there's still a lot of Corbynistas. I mean, there are, you know, all parties obviously have a big spectrum. Um, um, I, uh, but I mean, they uh, I mean, I think the, the the problem, you know, the the, 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 the sentence or a couple of sentences is often used to kind of, express the current political moment is that it's easier for the right to move to the left on economics than it is for the for the left to move right on culture and as culture has become so much central to politics that puts Labour at an enormous disadvantage I think um, now people sort of say well actually you know, you know Labour has some strong cards too in the culture wars um, they point I think probably wrongly to the kind of um, you know the at the end of euros and the kind of taking the knee and so on as um, somehow a victory for, for kind of the left in the culture Wars I'm not actually sure it really was but um, you know you can sort of you can sometimes see that point um, but I think overall the, the, that um, that observation holds water um, and um, yeah I mean I I uh, I mean, I guess if it continues to decline, there, there will you know, will the the kind of the, the grandees of the centre left um, mm. will probably split off. I mean, I nice, but you know, they could always join the Lib Dems, um, which is you know, essentially kind of centre left um, party. Um, there, there will, there, yeah. I mean, I think there will be a place for for a kind of leftish liberal party um um you know p- partly reflecting the interests of you know this now a huge um population of of liberalish graduates um you know perhaps you know, particularly in the in london and the and the southeast um often sort of sucked down from from the north and the midlands um and um but i think i mean i think i think the sort of class reversal you know as we've seen in America you know the republican party is a working class party now the Tory party is now more of a working class party in terms of voters than, than the labor party um you know, again partly for cultural reasons and i i can't really see that reversing and of course the Tory party is, it has its own problem of you know, how do you represent your new um, you know more more sort of precarious electorate you know very Public, sec- public services dependent, poorer electorate in the Midlands and the North, how do you align their interests with the, with the southern middle class um, or, uh, and, and richer Britons? I mean, well, perhaps you don't actually. I mean, you know, you're going to have to take some decisions at some point. Um,
1: um, anyway. Uh, the final audience question is from Ines. You've had four children with a woman that seems to have had an equally busy professional life to yourself. How did you juggle the responsibilities of fatherhood with the successful pursuit of your uh, interests and such an interesting and successful career? I'm very curious to, as to the day-to-day logistics of such people. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, well, I didn't do it that successfully, and indeed, you, you should uh, buy and read my, um, my wife's book. Um, reeducated, <laughs> which has just come out, um, which has a few um, revelations about about family life. I mean, I suppose I had um, I had the advantage of being um, well off. Um, so when children were young, Lucy was working part time. She worked three days a week, and we had a uh, a nanny on the other days of the week when children were young. Um I worked from home quite a lot when I was I was editing Prospect Magazine for much of the period when the children were very young. Um, so I I'm gonna mean, say so I could play um you know a reasonably significant role in their um in their childhoods. Um kind of you know, looking back on it now, I guess I sort of think I should have done, I should have been doing more. Um, I mean, mean, if you look at it over generations, which is obviously um, a helpful way of looking at it from my point of view, (laughs) Um, you know, I mean, I did infinitely more, uh, I was infinitely more involved in my children's lives than my father was involved in my or my siblings' lives. Um, um, I mean, in terms, I mean, Lucy did more more of the domestic labour and the, and the, and the, you know, doing homework with the kids and so on than I did um, but um and that, and that sort of created some of the the usual um resentments and conflicts um but i don't think to um uh to a particularly high degree um, and um yeah i mean you know i mean but you know but both of us both of us both me and and lucy we very lucky in a way. I mean, we um, we, we did both have very demanding jobs, um, and but we had we had a lot of help too. Um, Lucy's parents lived nearby when when the children were very young, and, were, and they were very close to them. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it does. It is one of the kind of unfortunate facts of life is that you know if you you know if you if you are quite ambitious and you have sort of professional ambitions they they often coincide with the period of highest demand from um from family as well and um um and i think um we uh, i think you know we I, I think one of the things that's that's come out of the pandemic actually is a sort of um return Uh, the kind of return of domesticity almost Um, obviously it's not always been a very happy story you read the headlines about increases in domestic abuse and so on but um I think you that you know a lot of the survey evidence shows that people have been rather um surprisingly sort of glad almost to rediscover family life I suppose we're talking about about more kind of um middle upper middle class people um doing professional jobs um you know, I, mean, I I think a lot of public policy has been rather biased against the family and against domesticity and you know, it's all been about how both parents can spend as little time as possible in the family and, and, and what it is to achieve is seen as almost entirely a kind of public realm thing and when it comes to kind of relations between men and women uh, it's only the public realm that we look at we never look at the private realm I and mean, in my experience certainly my own personal experience and those of most people I know um, women tend to dominate the private realm when when children are young. They, they tend to be more involved in their lives, and uh, but we kind of don't regard that as as a sort of as part of the equation, uh, which I think we should. I mean, I think we should sort of pull the camera back and look at the private realm and the public realm. Um, and I think I think this will be one of the themes of the next few years. Indeed, it's what, what I what I think I want to write my next book about is. Um, I think it's the sort of third great failing of modern liberalism in some ways. I mean, the first is, I mentioned earlier, the over over-enthusi- enthusiastic embrace of, of rapid change, forgetting that actually it's very discomforting to, to most people. There's a kind of right-wing version of that, is the creative destruction of modern capitalism and and being too careless about about deindustrialization it happened very far too rapidly in this country even if you compare it to some like Germany the left-wing version is being careless about immigration you know, not, not not thinking that it changes anything um, I mean, I think the second big failing is the kind of head hand heart one that we placed far too much emphasis on just one form of unability I think the third one is the, the third failing of modern liberalism is is to is to kind of ignore the importance of domesticity in family life to most people and actually to make it, make it easier through public policy uh, to, to sort of strengthen the family and to, to you know, help people get through some of those very stressful periods when they're at their most intense both at work and in family life, um, where a lot of, a lot of couples break up at that stage because of that pressure. And actually, you know, make it easier for one parent, probably usually the woman, but not always the woman, to stay at home when children are very young. I mean, polling evidence suggests that would be very, very popular. And yet it's something that um, that the, you know, the kind of that Westminster completely ignores.
1: Um, so, yeah. David, you have to run to central London. But uh, before you do, can I just ask you three quick questions? One, what is your favourite book of all time? Oh, blimey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fiction or non-fiction, doesn't matter. Um,
0: the I think the fiction book that I that uh, that kind of turned me on to modern fiction and particularly sort of magical realism was uh, was The Passion by Jeanette Winterson. Um, my favourite non-fiction book, which was very influential on me in in The Road to Somewhere, is the Jonathan Haidt book, um, The
1: Righteous Mind. Fantastic. Yes, that's uh, very well thumbed. I've got a million annotations in Height's book. Um, Who is one of your role models? um, One
0: of my role models, blimey. Um, That's a good question.
1: Um, Ask me the third and I'll try and come (laughs) back to this. Okay. Uh, If you couldn't have chosen your current career, what would you have picked instead, with the benefit of hindsight? Um,
0: I think I'd have, I would have liked to have been a musician of some kind. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not a trained musician anyway at all. I've, I've made various half-hearted attempts to learn the piano, but um, I wish I had been forced to when I was when I was young. Um, yeah, I think being a jazz pianist would. Um, is it's a sort of fantasy of mine um,
1: um
0: and a, a kind of role model
1: surely a jazz pianist
0: well yeah perhaps a jazz <laughs> pianist come yeah so and probably someone who sort of straddles one or two different i mean you know i like i like the sort of the generalist i like the um i mean obviously not everybody can be good at everything but um, um Or perhaps say, or someone who's really good at sport and also writes, how how about Michael Atherton? Let let me choose Michael Atherton as my role model. (laughs) We'll get him on Twitter. This will be the clip that we use. (laughs) I also actually met him and he said he'd read The Road to Somewhere and liked it.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, one thing I wanted to say to you was that uh, Rory wanted to say that he's in public affairs and political consultancy. And he says that that book is basically mandatory reading uh for all consultants so he wanted to know if you knew that but um <laughs> no i didn't <laughs> david thank anyway, you so much for your time um sorry, it's, sorry to be it's a bit a... brief than i might have been um and, uh, no and i problem. hope you can
0: edit out the blips um yeah, i will do yeah <laughs> or the pings rather indeed, okay. indeed.
1: thank right. you so much speak Love soon right. thank you for watching or listening to ideas sleep furiously If you really enjoyed this podcast then please do consider supporting the show over on patreon for just one dollar or one pound for that you get your name in the credits early access and lots more goodies thank you very much and i'll see you in the next one